0: 25th of March, 1807, was the day when the Slave Trade Act in Britain became law, i.e. a week today, it will be 200 years since that event. Actually, it was part of a longer story, um, Slave Trading in, on British Soil, had actually uh, already been made illegal. It was illegal from the 12th century onwards. But it was in the 16th to 18th centuries that slave trading between Africa and the British colonies in uh, uh, the West Indies and in America had grown to enormous um, proportions. Ships plied what some people used to call the the golden triangle because... um, Ships went from Britain to Africa with um, trinkets and rum and various uh, and guns sometimes. Um, There, they traded with African leaders, giving them handing over their their, um, booty in return for slaves. Slavery was a um, uh, had long been practised in, in Africa and uh, they took advantage of that to uh, begin the slave trade. These slaves were taken across the Atlantic then in the notorious Middle Passage it was, as it was called to the uh, uh, plantations in the West Indies and the Americas and then in uh, the West Indies and the Americas Having sold their slaves, they bought sugar mainly, other spices and a few other things and brought them back to Britain. And Britain was becoming extremely wealthy on the basis of that trade, Uh, particularly ports like Bristol and, uh, and Liverpool. It was in 1807 that the slave trade, this trade in slaves not on British soil, became illegal. It wasn't the only thing that needed to happen, it wasn't until 1833 that s- um, slave owning became illegal in the British colonies and uh, it was later than that in America and it had uh, been preceded by a long campaign in the, in the 18th century with some minor victories. But 1807 was the decisive moment and that's why the whole of Britain is talking about the slave trade at the moment. and um, and wanting to celebrate the victory that it was. Let me just uh, briefly explain to you what the three Sundays, this one and the next two, are going to uh, look like. Today, we're going to actually look in some detail about what the Bible actually says about slavery for um, reasons that will become clear in a minute. Then next week... Um, it will, uh, the, the service will actually be um, uh, not around a, a long sermon, but mainly around actually a number of people giving you some potted biographies of some of the major figures in the, in the abolition movement in Britain. And I hope you'll enjoy that. I hope that will feel like a real celebration next week as we look at some of these people from history. And then uh, two weeks from now, we're going to look a little bit more in detail about what it means to be a community of Christians who are dedicated to freedom. So that's where we're going. But uh, today we're going to look at what the Bible says about slavery. We're going to address one particular issue because a number of modern thinkers today are saying that it was actually modern liberal principles that led to the abolition of slavery, not Christianity at all. They are saying, of course, many of the key figures were Christians, after all, wasn't everybody in those days. But they're saying their Christianity was not the key thing that drove the abolition of slavery. They were actually um, modern Enlightenment liberals. More than that, they say that uh, um, these people had to specifically refute what the Bible said and go against what the Bible said because the Bible itself tolerates slavery. And it's that claim that... um, Uh, if you haven't heard it already, I suspect you will at some point over these next few weeks, that I want to specifically answer. And I want to do it in terms of um, uh, looking at one uh, um, figure today, who uh, in America, and a little bit today, is particularly outspoken on this. Sam Harris, who is... uh, um, an outspoken atheist, says slavery is challenged nowhere in the New or Old Testament. Slaveholders in the Old South, that's the South of America, used the Bible to defend their practice. He said it was conversation, not faith, that ended slavery. And I want to say to you this morning, that is wrong, historically, at least in Britain, it was the faith of Christians that was the engine behind the abolitionist movement. I want to say to you, actually, it's wrong biblically, because actually slavery, as Daniel's already um, alluded to, was challenged in the Bible, profoundly, in fundamental ways. And actually, the abolitionists saw that when they read their Bibles. Sam Harris is right that the Bible does mention slavery and it doesn't always condemn it. So we do need to spend a little bit of time working out what the Bible has to say so that we will know what actually was going on 200 years ago. First of all then, we need to look at the Old Testament and slavery and survey, just briefly, what the Old Testament does say about slavery. The first thing we need to recognise is that slavery was universal in Old Testament times amongst the nations. Every nation held slaves. In other nations those slaves were simply treated as property, to be disposed of as the master wished. But actually, um, it is the Old Testament which takes that and fundamentally changes the attitude to slavery that Old Testament people were to have. They, for instance, had a fundamental and important concept that underlay Um, all the Old Testament laws about slavery. It was this, that slaves are fully human. Job chapter 31, for instance, when Job is talking about how he has behaved in a righteous way according to the Old Testament law, um, uh, says... uh, uh, have, if i have denied justice to my men servants and maid servants my male and female slaves when they had a grievance against me what will i do when god confronts me what will i answer when called to account did he not he who made me and the womb make them did not the same one form us both within our mothers so job is saying we are both fellow human beings me and my men servants and maid servants indeed he's saying they have legal rights do you see that they have a grievance against me they can take it somewhere he says i am accountable to god for how i treat these fellow human beings with mothers appropriate on mothers day that, that attitude towards these, uh, um, the, the, these um, men and women is radically different from the attitude of 18th century slavers. In 1781, uh, uh, um, for instance, uh, there was a notorious incident uh, associated with a ship called the Zong. You'll hear a little bit more about it next week, but let me just uh, mention it this morning. On that occasion, for um, insurance reasons actually, the captain of the ship decided to turn 133 slaves um, into the water and they drowned. It came to light because he then claimed insurance on them. And in the court case that ensued, the active case was made that this was no more than throwing horses, into, like, throwing horses into the water. They are livestock. Those were the attitudes in the 18th century. And far, far from the attitudes of the Old Testament, perhaps 3,000 years before that, the Old Testament then, in recognising um, the uh, fundamental humanity of uh, the human beings all other human beings set in place limits to its understanding of slavery there was for instance a general admonition not to rule harshly leviticus 25:43 for instance says do not rule over them ruthlessly fear your god this is a god who cares for them says the old testament whatever rights a master may have over these other people. They are not to be exercised with ruthlessness. Uh, uh, more than that, slaves, particularly in the Old Testament, had rights. They had the right to life. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 and 21, it's explained that if a man beats his slave, um, and the slave dies, then the the master must be punished. They had no right to beat a, be, beat a slave to death. Completely different to all the other cultures around, where they had absolute right of life over their slaves. Indeed, in Exodus 21 as well, there was the right to compensation for injury. We'll see in a little, little while that... Um, Uh, Slavery was was, um, commonly uh, used instead of someone paying their debts. And uh, in Exodus 21 it explains that if someone, say, loses an eye or a tooth, they would normally expect financial compensation for that. But if they're a slave, then the equivalent is, let them go free. Any debt that they may have had outstanding is abolished if someone has treated them in that unfair way. Or um, uh, uh, women, female slaves, had the explicit right not to be sexually exploited. The Old Testament sets down very clearly that actually if a man has sexual relationships, w- w- relations with his female slave, she becomes his wife, or at least his concubine, which was another type of relationship which was um, uh, permitted in those days. And uh, if after that he dismisses her and, uh, and so on, that's like a divorce and she's to go free. The act actually of her becoming his sexual partner effectively liberated her from slavery. It was not right for that sort of unequal relationship to happen within a marriage type relationship. It was not allowed, not permitted. Now, I would uh, want want to. Um, oh, let me say. Let me let me um, pick up on this before we um, go any further. Slavery also within Israel was was uh, uh, of limited duration. Generally, the maximum amount of time that you could be a slave was six years. Every seventh year was a year of release for slaves. And in some circumstances, which is not 100% clear in the Old Testament, slaves would be set free in the year of Jubilee, which was the, uh, the, the 50th year after seven sevens of, uh, uh, of years. What it meant at the very least for a slave in Israel is that they couldn't be a slave, there couldn't be generation after generation of slaves. That uh, uh, slavery did not become then something that a a whole family um, endured for generations. Um, And uh, in most cases, they could only be required to endure it for uh, a maximum of six years. Alongside that, as well, there were other laws clearly set in place that show the dignity of all other human beings. Kidnapping was forbidden. Indeed, since it was considered to be robbing someone of their life, it was a capital offence. Now, in the Old Testament if you read the laws on slavery, there are remaining questions um, not all of which, I think, um, uh, I would say I've got entirely happy answers to. For instance, other nations could be enslaved more profoundly than Israelites. Many people suggest that's because um, in Old Testament times, there was a consider- it was considered that the other nations were under a curse that God had not yet lifted. But uh, I don't think anyone who reads the Old Testament wants to justify this as a perfect model society for today. The Old Testament doesn't purport to be that. Even the New Testament doesn't treat the Old Testament in that way. Rather, the Old Testament is working out principles about uh, mankind within a late Bronze Age culture. Many of the details uh, that are set out of how Old Testament believers were to, to behave are, were no longer relevant by the New Testament times and are certainly no longer relevant to, for, for today. It would be ridiculous to think that we are to go back to governing ourselves in the way that Bronze Age people did. But the principles that begin to be set out within that late Bronze Age culture are radical. And it is those principles that Christians have always set are to be worked out now in a subsequent and new generation. The Old Testament revolutionises the status of slaves when all the other cultures around were saying they're just property, the Old Testament was saying they're people. Sam Harris is, uh, is wrong then. Actually he's wrong beyond that, because it's not only a, a, an institution with limits, and it's an institution with a particular positive purpose. It was fundamentally used as a solution for insolvency. If a person became insolvent, bankrupt, for one of two reasons, then they could go into slavery. It may be that they committed a crime for which they were required to make some payment that they just hadn't got the, the uh, resources to pay, in which case instead they could become a labourer for up to six years for a, a master in order to effectively pay off their debts. Occasionally they, simply through bad management, they would, they would be heading for absolute poverty. In that case, voluntarily, they could say, rather than be destitute, me and my family, I will volunteer myself into this um, uh, uh, position as a labourer for up to six years. And in return I get bed and board and care for my family. Before the days of a welfare state then, it was transformed into a system for per- caring for people who were heading towards absolute poverty. Its humanitarian aspect is, uh, is made evident when in Exodus 21, for instance, it's made plain that a person could voluntarily decide that they will stay as a slave for the rest of their life. There's the rather quaint um, uh, little um, law. a servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and don't want to go free. And then his master must take him before the judges. There shall be some external adjudication to make sure that it is voluntary. He's decided he wants to do it. And then she'll take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl many will be his servant for life more than that there were uh, provisions in old testament law for um, leaving slavery and those provisions were very generous in Deuteronomy chapter 15 for instance um, it, the law insists that they are to be su- supplied liberally from the master's herd they must make sure that they leave the status of slavery where, with, with, uh, with plenty of resources. In, uh, uh, in the year of Jubilee, everyone recovered their land as well. If They lost it through debt. The family didn't lose it forever. The land was returned to them so that there will be, says the law in a number uh, of places, no poor amongst you. Israelite slavery then. Slavery in Israel is very, very far from 18th century slavery. And the abolitionists knew that. The abolitionists read their Bibles, saw those things in the 18th century and insisted again and again that Old Testament slavery, as they put it, is not Properly, slavery at all. These people are not not uh, don't lose their rights. They are not bound for the rest of their lives. They don't face generation after generation of slave status. They have rights to go to law. Then the New Testament. The New Testament again rather like the Old Testament, doesn't simply condemn slavery as an absolute evil. It's a little bit more subtle than that. It tells, for instance, slaves that um, they can glorify God as slaves. Just to take uh, the example of Colossians chapter 3, for instance, the Apostle Paul says, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for man, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favouritism. So, um, um, the Apostle is setting down a whole set of revolutionary ideas there. It is possible to live a dignified life as a Christian, even within an unjust system. And it is not always our first duty to be revolutionaries, to overthrow that system. It is possible indeed, says the Apostle, within that unjust system, to work as for God, to do a godly um, day's work as for the Lord. He's not justifying every aspect of slavery. He's just saying that because you find yourself in slavery, it doesn't mean that everything about your life has completely gone wrong. You can serve God in that uh, that, that situation. And uh, as a principle, as a rule, you should do that. More than that, um, the Apostle... Uh, um, acknowledges that it is possible for masters to glorify God as slave owners in the first century. Masters, he says, provide for your slaves what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. Which immediately, of course, brings us to something else very, very important that the New Testament does say about slavery, it is not an absolute evil, but let's be very clear, there are um, attitudes of justice that the New Testament does require in master-slave relationships, and for Christians that is absolutely important. Christian masters, even if they continue in the first century to be slave owners, must provide for their slaves what is right and fair. The principle of a fair day's wage for a fair day's work is, is, runs throughout the New Testament. You only have to look at what James says to people who don't pay proper wages to their workers to see how uh, um, important that is. Masters are to provide what is right and fair. A Christian who is an owner of slaves will have a very different attitude towards this person who works for them than a non-Christian. Though they may not have to uh, formally emancipate that slave. There may be all sorts of reasons why that's not the best thing for them. But, says the Apostle, to slaves now, slaves should seek their freedom if they can. in other words it's possible to glorify god as a slave but let's be clear says uh, paul on a number of occasions if you can get your uh, 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 if you can become free then do it that is a better state in uh, 1 corinthians 7 verse 21 he says that very clearly or well, the whole of the letter his letter to philemon is a fascinating little story let me just tell it to you A slave called Onesimus has clearly run away from this man Philemon. Almost certainly he wasn't a Christian at that point. And uh, because a third of the population of Rome were slaves and it was a big anonymous place, this slave Onesimus had ended up in Rome and had met Paul. And under Paul's influence he had become a Christian. And as a result of that, this slave realised that he needed to obey the law which said that slaves had to return to their masters. And so Paul is sending him back now to the master Philemon who happens to be a Christian. But Paul doesn't say, take him back as a slave. He says, Philemon... I can't command you to do this. But I'm telling you, you should set him free. Especially since he's a brother, but, but um, uh, that, 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 that's only a sort of added bit. As a human being, you should set him free. He does it very gently, and he doesn't insist on it. Because he knows that it is possible for God to be glorified within the master-slave relationship. But overall, he's clear in his own mind, the best thing Philemon can do is set Anesimus free. Added to that, slave trading in 1 Timothy 1.10, trading in people, is specifically isolated in a list of sins as a sin that Christians used to be involved in, but are no longer. The New Testament then is not a, a, a book which immediately just says, slave owning is wrong. But the New Testament does set in place a set of principles that in the short term limits the degree to which a rights that a master has over his life. And in the long term sets in train the um, uh, clear principle that in the end a society that is shaped by Christian principles will not be a slave-owning society. And the church recognised that very early. As I said, the church formally made slave-owning, uh, uh, slave-trading illegal, even in the 12th century. And al- although there were um, systems in the, um, uh, in the Middle Ages in which people weren't formally free, they were villeins tied to, to land and, and so on. Nevertheless, the Christian church was always fundamentally hostile to the abuse of uh, one person of another. It was the fact that uh, slave trading grew on foreign soil and the notorious middle passage was just between Africa and the colonies so the British people didn't see it but allowed it to grow and allowed propagandists to say, as they did, that this is not a cruel thing at all. This is simply a a way of enabling poor Africans to uh, uh, do a good day's work and to be fed well. It was those factors which enabled the slave trade to rise to the proportions that it did. And when people realised, when Christian people realised what was going on, they started to respond. The abolitionists then knew all that about the Bible. They read their Old and their New Testaments in exactly the way that I've explained to you and saw that in, in principle it, it uh, criticises slavery. But more than that, They um, noticed a number of other principles that they uh, were convinced made it absolutely vital that Britain end the slave trade. They, uh, for instance, insisted again and again that all human beings are of one blood. It's a quote actually from Acts chapter 17, verse 26, which in our NIVs, says, um, from one man he made every nation. But um, uh, uh, in the King James Version, it read uh, slightly differently. And uh, for instance, this man, Quiano, a Equiano, f- a former slave that you'll hear about more next week, he said, oh fool, fool who thinks that... Um, Uh, The Bible tolerates slavery. O fool! See the 17th chapter of the Acts, verse 26. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. All nations of men are made by God in God's image, says Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. And the abolitionists saw that and were driven It is so different, say, from uh, David Hume, who was a sceptic about Christianity, uh, who was formerly actually against the slave trade. But here is one of the things that he said in his uh, um, uh, piece of National Characters. I'm apt to suspect the Negroes, and in general all other species of men, for there are four or five different kinds, are naturally inferior to the whites. In in Jamaica, indeed, they talk of one Negro as a man of parts and learning, but it is likely he is admired for very slender accomplishments, like a parrot who speaks a few words plainly. The difference between Enlightenment thinkers and Christian thinkers in that age was chalk and cheese again and again and again. It was the Christians who read their Bible and said, These people are of one blood with us. More than that, they were nourished deeply by the theme in Scripture of freedom for the captives. The book of Exodus, where Israel in slavery was delivered by God out of slavery in Egypt, became the great rallying cry for black Christians in the uh, colonies. And Christianity was thriving there, not least because of the compassion of the white Christians who went and spoke to them about the love of God. And they saw themselves as Israelites in slavery. They were deeply excited by what they saw about Jesus, when he said that the, Lord is, the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, release for the oppressed. They saw that Christ is for freedom and that slavery is incompatible with it. Um, This quaint lady, Hannah Moore, more of her next week, for instance, wrote lots of little uh, ditties and poems. Shall Britain, where the soul of freedom reigns, forge chains for others she herself disdains? Yes, Britain has learned what freedom is about from its Bible. How could she then place uh, human beings in chains, even if they are black and in another part of the world? Or the uh, great principle, the golden rule, as the Bible puts it, love thy neighbour as thyself, again nourished many, many Christian thinkers as they meditated on scripture Um, Granville Sharp, more of him next week, said, The glorious system of the gospel destroys all narrow partiality and makes us citizens of the world by obliging us to profess universal benevolence. But But more especially, we are bound as Christians to commiserate and assist to the utmost of our power all persons in distress and captivity. The glorious system of the gospel does that said Granville Sharp. Because the Gospel tells me to love my neighbour as myself. And when someone tried to make that a narrow definition of who is my neighbour, Jesus blew it out of the water with the parable of the Good Samaritan. The abolitionists knew that. And then slightly more um, ominously, again and again the abolitionists appealed to another principle they saw throughout Scripture. God defends the poor. God takes vengeance on those who abuse the poor. They warned that of individual slave to individual slave traders and they said it applies to nations too. A nation can be judged by God if it abuses other people systematically. Just to give you one person William Cooper great um, hymn writer friend of John Newton who was also against uh, slavery um, wrote a poem in which are these lines remember heaven has an avenging rod to smite the poor is treason against God so what I want you to see this morning is that if anyone tells you that uh, they were only incidentally Christians, these people, who fought against the slave trade. And what was really going on was the was a general enlightenment about other nations. I want you to be able to say back to them, that is not true. That is fundamentally not true. They led the way vigorously as pioneers as people with a, with a radical new grasp of the brotherhood of all mankind because they read their Bibles. And because they saw that no nation should be allowed to oppress any other nation. What about today? I want you to take time to discuss this in, uh, in your groups uh, this week. But let me um, uh, suggest a few um, applications. Don't you think this tells us to read our Bibles carefully? Sam Harris, of course, can pick up an odd quote that seems to tolerate slavery and, uh, uh, and so on and completely rock the faith perhaps of, uh, uh, of people who, who haven't read their Bibles very, very carefully. Have not seen how the Bible fits together. The abolitionists plundered their scriptures, studied them, looked at them really hard and saw from that what the Lord was calling them to do today. We must be careful, diligent students of Scripture. And uh, this tells us something amazing about the power of Biblical truth. You know, the movement against slavery began really amongst just a few marginalised eccentrics. And yet it changed the world. There eccentric view that all human beings were equal has now become a universally accepted norm. Because they saw it in scripture and they fought for it and they spoke for it and they did it for decade after decade through defeat after defeat. But they were not going to stop because scripture told them. And don't you think we need to think hard about today?
1: You know, as I think
0: about it today, I think our problem is probably, not that there are no problems of injustice, but there are a bewildering number of them. Think of abortion. Christians have always read their Bibles carefully and concluded actually that Scripture te- teaches that from the earliest stage, in a mother's womb, that little infant is precious to God and is treated as human. And uh, today we we live uh, in a world that doesn't acknowledge that. And just as the middle passage was only between Africa and the colonies and not seen in polite British society, I fear that we so little see and meditate on what's going on. We do not realise the injustice that five million abortions since 1960 has done. I'll think of the trafficking of women, the modern slavery that we'll talk about more, I think, in the next couple of weeks. But uh, in Oxford, there are almost certainly people uh, women in brothels who are effectively slaves. I'll think about global warming, in which... um, uh, a small minority of the population consumes enormous amounts of um, uh, uh, unrenewable resources, and populations elsewhere face tragedy. think about third world debt, which has been a campaign for for some time or think about child poverty in uh, in this country and on on the list goes. What is the Lord calling you to be concerned about? I suspect that in today's world it's not going to be that Christians as a whole grasp one issue and drive forward on that one issue because they see that as being the great sore in our society. So I'm not sure there is one issue like that. There are lots of them. Maybe different people amongst us will be particularly concerned about one or other of those issues. Will you keep going? Will you be concerned? Will you be part of a movement that once again, like those 200 year old abolitionists, changed the world? One last thing for this week. Don't you think we should begin with ourselves? It was the Quakers who started the um, abolition movement. Quakers who were a rather quirky lot. And um, they held a very strong view that all men were equal Elizabeth Fry, when introduced, who was a Quaker, when introduced to the Queen, refused to curtsy and uh, caused some shock and consternation in the court as a result of that. But um, those Quakers suddenly realised that the same applies the other way as well. If they're refusing to call anyone who's in authority over them um, intrinsically bigger than them, Surely they should refuse to call anyone who is under them any smaller than them. Some Quakers were slave owners. And they gave up their slaves. And then, as a result of their own renunciation of that behaviour, they started to think, we must campaign for this more widely. And there personal example and zeal, led to the beginning of a new movement. What about us?